This episode of Solar Stories is produced by Mouth Media Network and presented by Solar. You know, it's having a vision and um, executing it in a way that the attention to detail, the attention to humanity, the attention to social interaction, and the feeling that inclusivity is the new exclusivity. And I really stress that because I really believe in that. How is traditional retail thinking about influencers in the social commerce space? To answer that, maybe you should ask a top-level executive of a major retailer. Coming up, we did one better. We asked Marigay McKee, former president and CEO of Saks, and former CMO of Harrods. She shares how retail is evolving from brick and mortar to e-commerce, and how her transition into advisory and philanthropic roles has provided additional insights. I'm George Manley, and you can find Marigay on Instagram at Marigay McKee, and her journey on this episode of Solar Stories, the art and business of influence. Well, Marigay, we are so thrilled and so thankful that you're giving us time today to have a conversation about um, everything you've done, everything you're currently doing, and ideally we can talk about some things that you would like to do in the future. Sure. So uh, your background is very impressive, particularly in the luxury retail scene. So you worked for 15 years, you said, at Harrods, mm-hmm. um, ending by being their CMO, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you rose through the ranks there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at uh, Saks for a while mm-hmm. as a president. Mm-hmm. 2013 um, to 2015. Okay. And um, and now you're running a consulting agency called MM Consulting, is that correct? MM Lux Consulting, yeah. Okay, excellent. So I'd like to hear a little bit about all of that, and I'd like to focus on some of the subjects we already talked about. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll bring those up one at a time. But before we get started um, with all of that, I did uh, a lot of background researching, as I'm supposed to, on the internet. Mm-hmm. So I know everything that the internet can tell me about you. Don't believe and it all. Is there anything that you want to... Tell me before we get started. <laughs> no, no, you. <laughs> Just kidding. Feel free. Feel free. Gosh, okay. now I know how Dr. Ford felt. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start. Um, really, one of the most interesting subjects to me, which I think will be also very appealing to the specific audience of this podcast, is um, the modern transition from brick and mortar to mm-hmm. online. Um, and how, you know, I mean, I just read it this morning in WWD. It sounds like even the Sears bankruptcy is going to end up in total liquidation. So Mm -hmm. we're seeing the collapse of these iconic retailers. Of course, you and also both the solar community are are more on the luxury scene. But but I would just love sort of your general thoughts around that, um, because I know you're still in the space consulting with companies that are going through this transition. So, you know, yes, absolutely. And it's kind of what we do every day. But um, yeah, no, I'm a big believer that the future of retail is digital but that the future of brand is physical. So the ideal sort of equation for brands is a mixture of physical and digital, um, you know, delivered in a way that is authentic, that has values, and that is um, relevant to the consumers of today, but also the consumers of tomorrow. So I'm a great believer and work with um, most of my clients on the premise that you really need the three E's of retail for all the brand work that one does today. And that's the experience, the environment, and the emotion. Because without great experience, a great environment, and the emotional engagement of the consumer, it's really difficult to scale brands. So um, I run two small companies in, in, in New York, one which I've been running for three and a half years, which is MM Lux Consulting. I have four key clients um, and uh, work on strategic projects with them. And then I run a small um, business that I started two years ago, with a partner who's an investment banker um, called Fernbrook, mm-hmm. which is um, a venture capital fund. And uh, actually, we've, we've invested in 18 brands in the last two years, and they're all very fast growth brands. So when people say to me, retail is dead, I don't, I'm not of the opinion that retail is dead at all, but I do think that traditional retail needs to be reinvented. I happen to be um, a proponent of brands, brands that are following the experience, environment, and emotion, uh, you know, an emotional journey um, 
I can name many that I think are doing very, very well. I would love to hear that list. You want to just <laughs> well, rattle I've some I've, off? I've invested in a few of them. Well, there's nothing but, wrong with that. You know, well, there's, you know <laughs> just for, for full clarity and transparency here. Sure. But I also think, you know, it's always been harder for the department store, the traditional department store model, to be as um, dynamic for want of a better word, than some of the smaller concept stores because you clearly it's, you know, it's more about space, right? And it's about space, it's about location, it's about traffic, and it's about how do you merchandise visually and aesthetically two and a half thousand brands in a space like, you know, if I think about Harrods, we trade it was a million square feet, but we traded on eight hundred thousand square feet. And, you know, we were doing $3,000 a square foot. Um, you know, if I think about, um, but, but we had 17, 18 million visitors a year. You know, if I think about the traditional department store system here, I, it, it wouldn't really be comparable because, you know, Harrods is, I spent a lot of my life there. I grew up there, it, you know. Built your career there. My, really, I built right? my career there. My, you know, Estee Lauder might say differently because I was at Estee Lauder prior to being at Harrods. So <laughs> I really feel that I was very lucky because I had very inspirational um, influences, um, you know, leading the companies that I was working for, you know, one being Leonard Lauder, who I believe is one of the wisest people on the planet and is still as relevant today as he was 50 Absolutely. years ago. Um, Muhammad Al-Fayed, who really believed in, you know, very eccentric is he, character. Is he still there? No, no, he's, he sold it to the Qataris in 2011. Okay. But he was um, a very inspirational leader in that he really, truly believed in the theater theater and activation of retail to create, you know, sort of making the magic happen. And I think he really was one of the people that taught me how to make the magic happen. And I think Leonard Lauder was one of the people that I always respected because he always believed in hard work, humility and humor. And I happen to believe that the three H's of hard work, humility, and humor are very important uh, if you're at the helm of a company, right? Sometimes it doesn't help if you're in America and you're British because sometimes your humor gets uh, sort of translated erroneously and it can get lost in translation. But I still believe that humor <laughs> is a very essential ingredient for work in for, for work today. But, you know, I've been very, very fortunate because... Um, over sort of the last 25 years, I've had access to, you know, working with really talented teams, really talented people, and working with some of the best brands in the world and helping them scale. Um, what I believe that is slightly different here in the United States is that because of the sheer scale of the country itself and because of the sheer scale and numbers of the department stores that are in the United States, you have a very different situation because firstly, you have more department stores per capita of the population than anywhere else in the world, right. number one. Rapidly, rapidly decreasing that though. And footfall, et cetera, you know, being a struggle. And, you know, if, if one were to look at, um, you know, the brands that I admire and, you know, the iconic brands in the department store world in the United States today. And that would be Saks, it would be Neiman Marcus, it would be Bloomingdale's, it would be Bergdorf's, it would be Barney's and it would be Nordstrom. Well, you just named them all. <laughs> Funny that. Um, you know, I think they all have a lot to offer the consumer and I think they all um, express that that their viewpoints in a different way. What I think is really important for department stores today, however, is they have to have a point of view. They have to have an edit because it's very, very difficult to merchandise two and a half thousand brands. That's why the merchants are so important. Two and a half thousand brands in a meaningful way that allows customers to shop and understand and see what they're trying to, um, you know, showcase, et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, in the digital, with, with the digital world, you've got so much opportunity now, right? So, you know, you've really got to think about it. Like you, these stores really, really need to make the magic happen and be almost like an Alice in Wonderland venue, because otherwise, why wouldn't you sit at home? And click and collect. Right. Or, you know, click and have delivered. And now with, you know, same day deliveries and next day deliveries and same week deliveries and being able to buy everything from a bicycle to um, a boat to anything else you want on Amazon, you know, you've actually, I think all of these businesses have had to really, really re-strategize and really up their game. And I think making the magic happen with dignity and integrity and fun but focusing on experience, environment, and emotion is the way forward. 100%. Now, if you look at the United States today, you know, one of my premises is, you know, actually, I don't think that, that, 
that the department stores in any way are irrelevant and I still believe in their future. I do believe they have to reinvent themselves and I do believe they have to reinvent themselves for the millennial consumers that are coming our way. Um, I mean, we think about China just on the other side of the world there. They're going to have 500 millennials, um, you know, very soon. 500 million. 500, sorry, and I'm talking in millions, but 500 million millennials yeah. any day soon. You think about Singapore. Is going are their to be, millennials the same as ours? I mean, are they similar in their buying patterns? And they're different in their buying patterns, patterns, and we can talk about that. Yeah. We can talk about that in, in a second. But the reason I was saying that is if you look at the United States with 350 million people, I mean, mm -hmm. 500 million millennials is going to be more than the. You Wipe know, us out. Yeah. The, the, than, than the um, than the entire population of the United States. So clearly, the United States is still a really important, um, a really important geography for luxury, and is still where I believe all of the luxury brands. Whether you're looking at LVMH, you're looking at Richemont, you're looking at L'Oreal, or you're looking at, um, you know, um, Kering, they still all are very, very focused on building their business in the United States because we still have a huge opportunity for growth in the luxury market, and that's a that's very important. However, it's also important because the dynamic is different. So you just mentioned, you know, we were just talking about China and, you know, in China, you know, there are still certain um, desirable assets that young Chinese millennials want to accrue, which a lot of U.S. Branded millennials, assets. branded assets, which a lot of U.S. millennials are less interested in. And it's a much older cadence that is looking for that, right. for that type of product. And right. so I think in itself, that is, that is different. And a lot of the, um, the U.S., young consumer category today they're looking for non-branded goods they're looking much more at provenance they're looking much more at give back they're looking much more they care about saving the ocean they care about using plastic straws they care about paper straws well yeah. they care about using plastic Not straws using to plastic straws. to yeah, yeah. eliminate them clearly yeah. and so um you know recycling wearing vintage um wearing non-branded goods um having amazing t-shirts, having amazing concepts. You know, you we understand the growth of streetwear here, um, which was, you know, started in, in in Asia, but has really evolved here in, in such a big way. And so I think there are, we're in the middle of a lot of segues here because, you know, there's a lot of change in, in the actual bricks and mortar setups. There's a lot of change in the millennial buying habits. Um, and there's a lot of change in the way that the brands are depicting themselves and the way that the brands are profiling themselves to be able to be relevant to new types of new types right. of customers. I mean, if you look at the average age of um, American department store consumers today, you're talking around fifty. Yeah. Right. If you look at the average age of you know the net portes the major operandis, and most of the digital luxury players, you're talking about thirty five. And then when you look at some sort of Instagram influencer brands, you're talking about average ages of twenty. So we're talking about very different segments Absolutely. of the population. And that does not mean that millennials don't shop in department stores by any means, but it might mean that they shop when they're with their parents or when someone else is paying. Right. They're not necessarily going to go to department stores themselves. We have five children between us, aged between 20 and 27, and I don't think any of them go into a department store unless one of us is with them and one of us happens to be going to pay for a large purchase or something. Otherwise, those kids are not going into department stores per se. Well, can I can I pause you for one of second? Because I want to pick some of this apart and I want to congratulate you as well. You just won the award for the longest answer to a single question on this podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't worry. People that know me well would not be surprised no, I mean, by that. There was so much interesting information in there, though. I really want to pick some of it out and sort of go a little deeper. Mm -hmm. I really liked your comment about the three E's and the three H's. I thought that was I mean, are those your mm -hmm. your ideas? Those are really cool. Um, speaking about particularly about the emotion of the retail experience. So I'm really interested, especially with all the knowledge you have, about what you envision a retail space, a successful, let's just focus on a very specific scene, a successful luxury retail environment in 25 years. Mm -hmm. what, what does it look like? The consumer walks in the door and what's happening? I mean, I think that that's a difficult question because of the 25-year um parameter because well, pick any year but you know, what, what, what will it turn into i believe i mean i believe that luxury is here to stay and i believe that luxury will exist um it just may have a slightly different patina than it has today but i believe that you know really true luxury is focused around service 
and is focused around um, is focused around service and is focused around um, the expectations of the consumer that is searching for luxury. And I also think by sheer the sheer definition of luxury will will have changed because for someone like me, for example, you know, all the years I worked at Harrods, clearly I was uh, catering to the one percent. But you know, we were always trying to fulfill the needs of people that wanted luxury goods, whether yeah, that was through our thirty one restaurants or whether that, that was through our food halls or whether that was through our designer floors or shoe floors or a 20,000 square foot spa, the reality is we were catering to the needs of those that had the um, ability to pay for best-in-class, world-class experiences, right? The interesting thing, though, is that, you know, service was always at the forefront, but really today more than ever service has to become even more important because with the access that we all have to digital and you know some of the department stores that we were talking about earlier their digital businesses are really large ranging from 15% to 30% of their total business right, models right. so even if you were to close 50% of their doors and just keep 20 doors in the key, in the 20 key cities instead of 40 doors you would probably be able to absolutely make up the the rest of the trade through digital but but that's why the stores that you the do have the rest of the sales that the maybe not the, sales, the margins the rest of the, the margins would be different granted but you would be able to make up the trade with half the number of doors if the 20 doors that you kept versus 40 and I'm taking that as an example because sure. two of the largest groups have 40 doors each right, right. is that the reality is if you are focusing on service with and sophistication and strategy and you know in a, delivered in a great way I think you can still build that. You can still build those businesses. The issue is that if you're not focused on service, then the question has to be, why bother? So you 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 see the the future retail environment being more service heavy. So I'm just going to throw an example. It it'll be like tailoring services, styling services, uh, digital buying and services. Yes, but mixed with humanity and technology. In what way? So for me, the humanity has to come more and more into the physical retail experience because the consumer of today really cares about the planet, really cares about the environment, really cares about, you know, to me, inclusivity is the new exclusivity. And as we move forward, that's going to become ever more important. And I do see that as a trend. In fact, I've just written a piece for the FT, How to Spend It, which should be in next week's or the weeks after um, How to Spend It. Will you send it. it to me when it comes out? For sure, but you could actually go to a newsagent's and maybe do the old-fashioned thing of buying the newspaper on the weekend if you don't read the FT How to Spend It. I sorry. have a digital subscription, but then I, I have know. to search for it, wait for it, no, sli- not sleep at night. You know what? The night. digital subscription is not the same. Sorry, FT. But um, <laughs> you really need to feel the pink paper. I love the pink paper. And you really need to – like that How to Spend It magazine, I actually am a great fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's environmental things there too. But there is environmental things there too. So I'm not going to make you do uh, have the paper version, but I still enjoy touching paper. And I'm one of these people that has had two Kindles and just has gone back to paper books because I just can't. I I, I I don't like the Kindle experience either. I don't don't like that. Um, So uh, someone at Kindle needs to figure out their their, Talk about needing an emotional experience change. (laughs) Their experiential change and dynamic. But no, what I was going to say is, from my perspective, um, and again, this is a personal perspective um, after 25 years in retail, but I really believe strongly that the humanity, the mix of humanity and technology is the right equation for the future of the retail experience because the consumers do care about provenance. They do care about interaction. They care about environment. They care about um, you know, how it's made. And that's why I think like LVMH are doing something really, really clever right now, which I love. Um, you know, Caring are doing a lot on sustainability and Caring are doing a lot on social consciousness. What I love about LVMH is that with all of their brands, what they're really doing is going into the provenance on the heritage of the craftsmanship, which I think is really important because at the end of the day, that will separate fast goods from traditionally handcrafted goods. Absolutely. And I think working on the provenance, whether it's a whiskey or a wine or a beautiful saddle leather bag or a handcrafted couture gown, showcasing the back of house. And, you know, now having gone onto their digital platform, 
and with the youngest member of the family now being the CEO of Ramoa and really caring about the environment and understanding digital as well as he does. And with Antoine, you know, doing Baluti and Laura Piana and those sorts of brands and working on the behind the scenes of why those brands are crafted the way they are. Why, you know, why, why wear a Baluti boot when you could wear something else? Right. Once you, once you fall in love with the story. And I think storytelling is a big, big, big part of the retail brands of the future. Then, you know, you fall in love with the story. So like I'll probably have these boots for 20 years because I love, I, I know how they're made. I know that they've been polished to within an inch of their life. I know that they're going to be uber comfortable and I know that they're not going to be a fashion, a fashion statement. They're just going to get old as I get old, but they're right? going to look better and as they're they gonna, And they're going to look old with me, yeah. you know, um, just like you <laughs> 20 years old, yeah. still looking good. You it's know? an investment. If it's piece. a great piece of leather or a great, you know, I really am. I've always fallen in love with the story. I've been a sucker for a romantic story and a romantic ending. And so I see, um, and again, this is very, maybe a different point of view to a lot of people, but I see a moisturizer, not as a moisturizer. I see it as hope in a jar. I see a bottle of fragrance as a dream and a fantasy. Hope what? Of having moister skin? No, like to, moisturizer for many women is hope in a jar. Why else would they pay $500? Keep them from aging, you mean? $500, yes. yes hope in a jar. It. Got it. You know, why else would they pay $500 for a moisturizer right. if it's not hope in a jar? Right, I get that. Why would they pay $250 for a bottle of fragrance and scent if... It's not if their fantasy isn't encased in that. Exactly. You know, in that why, experience. Yeah. Exactly. And so for me, when I look at um, a luxury goods piece or a vintage piece, I fall in love with the story and I fall in love with what that represents. And so from my perspective, I see that as an opportunity to have that as a part of, uh, part of my life. And as I'm getting older, actually, I'm less inclined I buy less, but I try and buy better. And so I, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people feel that way. It's not about the number of units. It's about the story, the happily ever after. And I see these pieces that grow old with me as happily ever after pieces. Coming up, you'll hear Marigay explain her philanthropic initiatives, her investment opportunities, and more specifically, we'll dive into the human element of the modern retail experience. Follow the show on Instagram at solar underscore stories, and you can find more episodes of Solar Stories and learn more about solar at solar.com. talking about the human experience in the modern retail world where it'll be successful because i personally believe i agree with you the brick and mortar is not dead it's not it it's not dying it certainly is changing um i do believe that like keystone wholesaling is is dead or is dying because there's that margin setup doesn't work anymore especially for the e-commerce guys but the um the idea of uh the future human experience in retail i think of people uh, like um I think it was Louis Vuitton that just opened that new Peter Marino space in Costa Mesa. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see that conversation in WWD? You know, they were having a fight, literally, Peter Marino and I'm forgetting his name, the CEO of Louis Vuitton. Michael oh, Buck. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Over the, um, you know, the experiential environment, the services provided and how that gets aesthetic- aesthetically laid out in order to capture, mm-hmm. you know, and combine all of that. Um, I'd have trouble betting on which one of those is going to win the argument. They're both formidable creatures. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're both very well. <laughs> yes, but they're good friends too. Yeah, yeah, they are. And I think, I mean, Peter Worked Marino's, for 30 years. he's built almost all of their U.S. stores, right? Yeah. So. Um, and he's just building his new art museum in Southampton. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. His, his private collection is going to be, um, he's going to have his own museum in Southampton. Wow. I didn't on know Jobs that. On Jobs Lane. Yeah. He's, his, he's uh, bought the old library. His oh wow that's it's so amazing cool. building wow a very good friend of mine was his last head of PR for several years and she mm-hmm. had a tough job um, but um, so there's that human element in the retail experience but then there's there's you and there's the human element that that you sort of you know throw out into the world in your philanthropic initiatives and it sounds like your investment 
uh, initiatives as well, those are focused around a human element. So why don't you talk about any of that in okay. your in your order of choice? You know, I've always worked really hard and work has always been a really big priority for me as well as family. And I'm very lucky I have two great children and I have a great partner and he has three children. So we have five children between us, um, aged between 20 and 27. And we feel very, very fortunate. Um, we've been together for five years since I arrived in America. And, um, you know, he's he's taught me a lot. And I've grown watching him a lot. Because one of the very interesting things about America is that philanthropy is viewed in a very different way than it is in other parts of the world. So when I take Europe, for example, you know, a lot of families that have managed to gather art over the centuries or have managed to gather castles or stately homes or things like It's gone down generation to generation to generation to generation. And yes, it's philanthropic, but it's kind of like what I call inverted philanthropy, right? right. It's, it's, about, it's internal. It's about keeping, Introverted. It, keeping yeah. it in the family, right? <laughs> so whereas, you know, one of the things that really has um, surprised me and actually delighted me about living in America, and I'm one of the positive people about living in America right now, despite some of the chaotic um, scenarios going on around us, is that, you know, really, America is a very, very generous country. It was built on the foundation of people from all over the world coming here and, you know, the land of the free and the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But what's really interesting to me about America, um, just as a human being and as, a, as an executive, really, is how generous private individuals are and how many institutions in the U.S. are funded by private private donations, private money, and by private and sometimes unknown benefactors. And I find that amazing. And um, I've met a lot of them since I've been living here over the last five years because mm -hmm. of some of the work we do and mm -hmm. because of some of, the, some of the connections through fashion or through finance. And I find it incredible. I mean, whether we're looking at the High Line or whether we're looking at the Whitney and whether we're looking at MoMA, um, even the Met, when you think about some of the boards in a city like New York or in a city like LA or San Francisco. Oh, it's like the Boston and Washington. Executive board of a Fortune 500 company. Exactly. Yeah. You know, when you look at how much money has been donated, and then you look at sort of some of the, the three biggest foundations here, whether you've got, you know, the Gates Foundation, you've got the Soros Foundation, and you've got the Ford Foundation. You know, I think Gates Foundation, over 30 billion, Ford's fa Ford Foundation, 15 billion, Soros Foundation, 15 billion. These are big institutions with big amounts of endowments that do really do great things, whether it's criminal justice reform, whether it's culture for those that don't have the access to culture and art institutions that really can give people hope and can enlighten people's points of view. Right. And so I really, that's one of the things I think that has most surprised me about America. Oh, and you didn't I most, know that before that, moving over No, here? you don't really. I mean, you know, you always hear that um, America is very philanthropically focused, but to actually be surrounded by it and seeing it every day, whether it's the partnership of New York or whether it's the many medical institutions and many cultural institutions. And I know I'm, we're quite close to the Rockefeller University. So, you know, my partner's the chairman. Another foundation there. My, you know, and my partner's the chairman yeah. of that, of that, um, of that university, you know, number one university in the world for medical research. Mm -hmm. Most mm -hmm. people don't know that. 25 Nobel Prize winning scientists. Most people don't know that you know, discovered the treatment for HIV and gave longevity of life for people suffering with HIV, discovered methadone in the treatment of heroin addiction, mm -hmm. um, discovered blood types, discovered DNA right here in New York. I mean, how fantastic is that? And all through private funding. Right. So to me, that's incredible. To me, the High Line, which was started with private money and was completed with public and a mixture of private money, incredible. Look, 8.8 .8 million people last year, Soon to be 20 million visitors they're anticipating over the next, you know, five years. It was it's also incredible. so beautifully done because sometimes those projects beautifully aren't. executed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing. And it's private money. It's beautifully executed, which leads me on to, I mean, the two nonprofits that I work with here in the city. Again, private money. Um, one is called The Shed and is going to be a uh, cultural ex institution par excellence. Yeah, right no, on yeah, the high performance line. space too, right? Right on the high line based on art media, performance, so dance, music, art, 
sculpture. So cool. Incredible glass building atop the High Line. Um, incredible programming. Incredible curator. Um, in the form of and and um, executive director in the form of Alex Poots, mm-hmm. and incredible um, driver in Dan Doktorov, who this is really has been his mission for the last few years. Exactly, yeah. could never have been made possible without Mike Bloomberg. Right, and is really, really. I'm just so proud to even be a part of it because I really believe that over the next few years, the shed will become one of the foremost institutions in New York. Where on the High Line is it going to sit? It's by Thirtieth and Tenth. Okay. So and near, near Hudson right, Yards. No. Right in the middle of Hudson yeah, Yards. Okay. It's and one you're of the developing flanking. that project I'm as well, right? I'm on the board, right? yes, I am. Amazing. So, yeah, I'm a strategic retail advisor to the Hudson Yards project, which yep. is a $40 billion um, real estate development project, project that I love because it's about it's not just about living or working or shopping or dining. It's about building a community and building a partnership with the city where 65,000 people will live and work and where there will be 100 stores and 30 different types of places to go and eat and 14 acres of green space and a beautiful art and culture center and a beautiful Thomas Heatherwick vessel sculpture, um, hotels, fitness spaces. <laughs> it's going to be phenomenal. It's funny. I asked you what the future of re- you think the future of retailing is going to be, and you're actually building it. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I would. Far be it from it. I'm a spec on the landscape. Yeah, um, but you're advising. I'm just a, con- I'm just a consultant, but yeah. I'm advising on the retail strategy and on the retail experience for right. sure, right. and have been for the last three years. And um, although I'm not a West Side resident, I'm an Upper East Side resident. I don't think I'm cool enough to be a, a West Side resident, but you know, those are two know. different cliques altogether. Those are two different cliques, <laughs> but I will definitely be, um, you know, championing the cause of Hudson Yards because I believe, to me, it's an example of how to build a city within a city, how to add value to a city, how to regenerate a part of the city that was really needing regeneration. When you think about those railway lines and what's been done to the piers and what's right. been done to with via the High Line, right. I think Steve Ross. The chairman of Related is a genius. I think Mike Bloomberg and Dan Doctor were geniuses to partner with him. And I think to see that vision executed, which was, it's a 10 year project. Oh yeah. Right. Um, I think it's going to be phenomenal. Um, I used to run the retail uh, space uh, at the Chelsea market and my, my bosses, actually the managing director, my boss, Michael Phillips of Jamestown properties was involved in the early conception of that because it passes right through the building. That's right. I mean, it's just, you know, it's having a vision, it's it's having a vision and um, executing it in a way that the attention to detail, the attention to humanity, the attention to social interaction, and the feeling that inclusivity is the new exclusivity. And I really stress that because I really believe in that. And so um, from that perspective, The Shed is a $550 million cultural just the shed? startup. Yes. Oh, my God. So... $550 million has been raised to build the shed. Um, we open next year. Including public money? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, that's amazing. But it's mostly – that's $550 million has been private. Yeah. So the public money, there was – Oh, the public's four, on top of that. $4 million was given to start the Hudson Yards project. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's other financial – um, you know, I, I've, I've learned in the last few years, I really need to be precise here. So I don't want to mention <laughs> a number and it not be right. But I know we've, we've, um, we've raised $550 million to, to build the shed and kudos to Dan Doctoroff and John Tish and the other um, sort of Prim. heads of the boards, because yeah. that's great. And when I was asked, I, I was really excited when I was asked to join the board a year ago, because I think being part of a cultural institution in the middle of the city when you're just an English girl in New York that's been a shop girl all her life is quite something. That is amazing. And so I was very humbled. And, you know, I never really thought I was old enough to go on a board. But when you hit 50, even though I'm one of these people that think that 50 is the new 30, um, I think when you're on a board um, like that, you know, it's a privilege, Absolutely. right? It's a privilege. And I, I feel like it's a privilege and there's a responsibility. And I just believe that, you know, what Dan Doctoroff is doing with Sidewalk Labs for the city, Yeah. what um, Mike Bloomberg did for the city as the mayor of New York, um, and, you know, what Steve Ross has done in terms of his vision for Related and his team and Bruce and Jeff and Ken and Weber, 
these are these are people that have really seen the seen the vision had the dream seen the vision and executed well upon it and i think that when we look at cities and there's many more examples across the united states when you look at downtown detroit and what's happened there when you look at what's going on right now in downtown la when you look at what's going on in the middle of silicon valley when you look at the regeneration that edens have done um, outside of Washington, D.C. with Union Market, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with Absolutely. based on your background. I think Jody McLean is also, you know, she's a genius. I think when I look at what Andrea Dracitis at Blackstone and, and the team of John Gray are doing to regenerate buildings around the country and create communities, I think that's smart. Well, Jamestown is doing that too. They did Warehouse Row in Chattanooga. They're doing that new project uh, exactly. in Atlanta. They, they take old factory spaces yeah. and renovate and you them regenerate, into And you regenerate it. And then when you look at brands that are doing well, and I mean, you know, we've, in, we've invested in a few, you know, you really have to think about what, you know, what is it going to take for that brand to scale? Why is that brand going to be successful? What's the wow factor? What's the point of difference? What's going to help that brand generate more revenue? What's going to help that brand generate more followers? What's going to generate, what's going to make that brand actually create a positioning platform that people can buy into and believe? And so from my perspective, when I look at all of this, and this is why I love the shared, and this is why I love Related, because from my perspective, you know, in the old days, we had a mall. And we went to the mall and we bought. But today it's not enough to have a mall because the mall doesn't really present any excitement unless it's executed in a really big way. And that's why actually it's the mall developers and the mall providers that are really having to strategize on what does experiential mean and what does disruptive technology mean? Because these are the two of the most overutilized words in our business, right? And so people say, oh, I'm going to be a disruptor. I'm I'm going to have a disruptive technology. But really, what is a truly disruptive technology and what is really a disruptor. And so I think that when we think about when we think about that for me this concept of you're not really creating a shopping center what you're creating is 12 million square feet of offices, a million square feet of retail, you know, Homes. 14 acres of parks, um two and a half thousand apartments, you know, somewhere where you can see ballet and opera and art and have dance and be open to the five boroughs, not just to the elite 1% that can pay $30 entrance fee into a museum. Well, that's what's so interesting about all these developments is that they're really happening in previously uh, damaged like downtown core areas um, where the foot traffic already is in the surrounding area and where the um, money really should go. The whole idea of like the suburban mall format is, is, yeah. is you know, in my opinion, they're all going to be warehouses in, in 25 years. And I, and, and I really agree with that. But I think that one of the things that um, is going e-commerce to E-commerce fulfillment warehouses. E-commerce fulfillment <laughs> warehouses, yeah. I think, what's that? Like half of Seattle is like an Amazon fulfillment That's right. warehouse? Exactly. Um, but, you know, I think, and, and to your point, the only other thing that I would say that that should, should be made more of a priority in America for all of these things to really come to life in a, in a, in a genuine way is the infrastructure, mm. which, you know, I still believe that that's a big issue here. Hundred I mean, if you think about, um, just airports, for example, I travel a lot, right? So in the last three weeks I've done London, Tokyo, and then in the U S I've done Dallas, Philadelphia, and Silicon Valley, right? That's just in the last three weeks. How many airports do I go to every week? How much, um, you know, commercial travel do I do a lot? So, in the United States, in 20 years, we've had one international airport, Denver, Colorado. Okay, we're about to have LaGuardia, still in, still, still in works, but, you know, 20 years. And we're a country of 350 million people. China, it's pathetic. in the last 10 years, has built 67 international airports. They're getting ready for the influx of people that are going to be traveling. Hong Kong is about to double in size its airport. Shanghai is about to double in size its airport. Beijing is about to double in size its airport. And they've built 67 international airports. We've built one in 20 years. So to me, you know, when we look at infrastructure as an opportunity for the evolution of investment in this country and for this is why private investment is so important, because it's been very difficult because of the, and again, I'm not here to criticize any strategic, I'm completely bipartisan, but, you know, I think that really understanding that all of the states should get together to make things happen in a much more concrete way. And I think what you're going to see in the future, and it's it's related to retail, is that the big four, like 
like Amazon and Facebook and Instagram and Google and Microsoft, all of these big, large-scale corporations that have so much spending power and that have so much technological ability, I think you're going to find that these guys are going to come together and that these guys are actually going to create bases that will really help um, this country come into the next generation because it's all well and good for us to have a sophisticated consumer and it's all well and good for us to have the markets, well, up until this week, <laughs> doing so terribly well. It's great to have 4 million new jobs in the last two years. But what are we going to do about the infrastructure? What are we going to do about healthcare and education, which without healthcare and education, how do we protect our future? And what are we going to do about, and again, sorry to mention it because I was not intending to mention this on the podcast, but you know, what are we going to do about the 2.5 million people that are incarcerated in the US? Which Why didn't you want to mention that? Because I don't want to sort of always always be talking about criminal justice and uh, prison reform, but I do think it's very. But you're important. always talking about that with my friends and with my family. Yes, we often. That's a do very that. important subject. We no, often I appreciate have, you mentioning it. Well, we often have debates about it, but they all are like, "Here she goes." It's just that <laughs> I have an issue with it because if we look, I love percentages, and I like I like research, and I like reading about it. And it's only in the last five years of my life that I'm learning how important precision is mm -hmm. in all of these things. I've never been that scientific. I'm a creative girl. It doesn't matter if you add a, a bit of a zero here and a bit of a zero here. It actually does. Because America is 5% of the world's population, but it's 25% of the incarcerated world's population. That to me is a problem. Because right there, that gives you a very big story. So when we're talking about philanthropic efforts, yes, you know, it's fabulous to be on the board of the shared and bring culture to the five boroughs and really give access to culture to people that might not normally have access to culture. And also, by the way, just build a bloody beautiful building in the middle of New York that's going to attract a lot of people and it's going to be just something wonderful to experience, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, being someone that's had the opportunity to be educated, us having five kids that have all been very well educated, um, thankfully, or uh, and by parents that have a really strong focus on education... What about the people that don't have access to that? And what about the people that just find themselves in a rut and can't really, A, have access to um, a great education or let alone an Ivy League education and then um, come from backgrounds where the chances of them landing in our penitentiary system are very, very high and where you still have five or six states in the South where prisons are the number one source of income for that state. But when you have a situation where prisons are the number one form of income of that state, is that not kind of like a you know, it's kind of an antidote for things to not go the right way. And um, I think we're still incarcerating people for very minor drug offenses where that are legal in 13 other states. So why are we still putting people in prison for, 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 for offenses like that? So there's a and lot in of... in the country to the north. There's a lot of issues. I think um, my partner's very, very happy that I do not have American citizenship because that means that I am banned from going into American politics. So I think he's very relieved about that. <laughs> and the fact that I only have a green card and I'm not an American citizen. But um, We can change those rules. I Yeah, I know we're, we're working on changing them, actually. Coming up, Marigay is going to tell us why she got so passionate about the subject of incarceration due to the night she spent in prison. So Marigay, obviously, leading into this segment, we were kidding. Um, but uh, I am interested specifically in, um, you know, some of the things you said in the last segment. Um, and I'd like to do a deeper dive on it, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. So, you know, political labeling and all that crap aside, um, you you seem to have a, a very big heart. Um, you seem to have a very... Um, uh, passionate, um, thoughtful, uh, internal conversation around a lot of these important subjects that mm -hmm. involve humanity. Um, so, but I'm interested to see, to hear that like you were, you were sort of saying that private, or you did say that private funding is so important. Definitely. And then at the same time you said, Infrastructure, healthcare, incarceration, education, all of those things are incredibly important. Big topics, yeah. Um, so how do you bridge the two? 
Well, this is what this is where I think that you know it would be really, really important for um, both parties to come together to fix these situations because I don't believe these are political. Um, affiliated arguments. I think these are things that are just for the good of America right. and for the good of the country and for the good of the people. And I think, you know, I I struggle with some of the, you know, I'm just not used to the very inflammatory ads I see here on TV. I'm just not used to the very inflammatory um, conversations. Gosh, when We're I very think, direct. It's I know, very American. When I think back to 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 how civilized David Cameron was, um, you know, as, as, or Walter as, Cronkite. as, a, as a prime minister that I adored, um, you know, uh, and even though Tony Blair, although he was uh, he was very, um, there's there's been a lot of um, issues in in latter years um, with him. But you know they were all very civilized right. politicians, and they right. were all very very clear about their agendas and very clear about what they were going to do. You come to America, and it's just like these really inflammatory ads that even if they're twenty second segments, you're like, oh my goodness, you know why you can't vote for this person or why you can't vote for that person or what you can do about this one. And it's just very, very different environment, you know, and we live in right now in an environment that is, you know, I just wish if, if, if I could have a, a, a wish for the world right now, it would be just coming together and just making kindness a really, you know, something that we all study at school. Why yeah. not? You know, yeah. because actually I think being kind and, you know, having respect for others means, you know, we live in a free country. So I, I'm open to everybody's, you know, philanthropic ideology. But I just think, let's come together and, and, and fix some of these things. It's just right. being divisive. I just think it, it uses up so much energy. And I know it's the it's the politician's mantra. And it's the Wait, politician's so are you saying talking. you want those political ads to be politer as well? Well, I know, I just think that it's just it's, it's quite a lot of the ads are very, you know, they're very inflammatory. Well, you know, there's a law, this is true. There's a law on the books in the U.S. that allows political advertising to be completely false without defamation suit recourse. So you can, the reason that law was put into place is because if, if politicians lie about their opponents, they can't be sued. And they, don't, they want to have the ability to say whatever they want in order to run their campaign the way they want. And that was put in place by the politicians because they want to but have – isn't that just horrendous? It's horrendous. It's, it's absolutely horrendous. horrendous. But that's why those yeah. ads are as salacious as they are because yeah. it draws eyeballs. It's like the whole Fox News Listen, effect. And I'm my not getting father, political about it My father either, died last year and he was in local politics. And um, you know, when I think back to the last 20 or 30 years of his life, it was just about making people's – lives in his little bit of the world better right it was about making people's homes somewhere that they would be proud to live it was about making education accessible for all it was about just having the best health care with the resources that were available it was never about anything inflammatory it was never about anything antagonistic and it was about coming together with all of the political parties to just try and make change and sometimes if we come together we can make change. And I just, you know... Most of the time we can. We can We just don't do it that often And I think anymore. dialogue, I just think, I believe in dialogue and I fundamentally believe in humanity and in, I believe that fundamentally all humans are made good, but different, you know, environments that they are subjected to and different catalysts that they're subjected to make them go on different courses. Right. And sometimes some of us are very fortunate that we had parents who loved us, who gave us confidence, who gave us values, who gave us a home over our heads, make us have had a different trajectory and a different journey right. to some people. Gave us that, education or the option to have education. The values yeah. and the option to have education. And so that's one of the things, you know, um, listen, I am very grateful to be living in America. I love America. I miss England. I miss some things. I've gone from scones to bagels, from tea to coffee, and from fish and chips to... You don't drink tea anymore. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> from fish and chips to hot dogs. But you know what? <laughs> the reality is this is a great country. It's still a country of opportunity. It's still a country of where large business can be very, very, very successful, but where small businesses can also be very successful. And I think I what I come across here that I love... And I'm getting so much more involved in every day is the spirit of entrepreneurship. And what I love about the entrepreneurs that I work with, aside from the fact that I love surrounding myself with young people, because I think it keeps your brain agile, it mm -hmm. keeps you alert, mm -hmm. and it keeps you much more dynamic. And in um, touch with what's going on in the street, keeps so you to much speak. more in touch. You know, I've gone from having, you know, like two drivers and two assistants to Uber and getting my own Starbucks. And I've never been more connected to the world than I am today. Right. 
you know, I've gone from being in an ivory tower um, where everybody wanted to come and work with us and everybody wanted to give us their exclusives and everybody to, you know, um, I work in, in rental space in a WeWorks admittedly on park Ditto. avenue but you know <laughs> i you know i i, I we work, work is great i work in a we works that is fantastic i love it i've got a young team they love working there they keep me young they make me think about things that i never used to think about and i realized that actually in my 30s and 40s i was so focused on work i led a very sheltered life i didn't mm. really have time for philanthropy right. i didn't really have time for some of the things that i really see now as being so important and um, and actually, although people always say to me, well, you had a great career. And I'm like, yes, I had a great career and I had a lot of opportunity. And I was promoted um, um, many times at Harrods, which led to where to the to the journey that led me to America. But I wasn't really, you know, making a difference. You know, when you work in a shop, it's fabulous. And, you know, we, we, we meet people's needs, but I'm not necessarily saving lives here. Yeah, right? you're living in a bubble so, a bit. Yeah. So, and yeah. you're living in a bubble. So I feel that the onus is on us now to really try and make a difference. So you now I have a, a great partner who's very, very humble, comes from New Jersey. You can Where in New Jersey? Summit, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. You can take the man out of New Jersey. You cannot take New Jersey out of the no. man. We grew up in Rumson, so I know oh, I know yes. the Jersey yes. character yes. very well. there you go. And so, and it's funny because, you know, the two of us, we made a pact five years ago that was, we love to have like a motto for us. It's our own motto. And it's something I think is really good advice for every family to have one. But ours is always do the right thing. And so he said to me, you know, if we always do the right thing, even if other people don't deem it to be the right thing, even if it's not envisioned as the right thing, if we always know that we have done the right thing on everything we try to do, you know, that's well, going to be a good thing. And so so let, let me ask hard. you specifically about that then, yeah. though, because I'm, I'm going back to the subject. I mean, you mentioned China earlier and how yeah. they built 67 international airports in the last 10 years. And so how we have one four thing, and a half billion cell phones in the world. Yeah, yes. I mean... One thing that I think China does really well, which we cannot do as a result of the way we're set up, is they have, you know, total control of their public money. Yeah. It's, it's completely centralized. So there's a, there's a very small group of people that are deciding how that money is invested. Right. And they're smart in that they're investing in the expansion of their, of their national uh, infrastructure and brand, right, right. across yeah. the world. The U.S. is, is – it, quite honestly, I think our current political cycle is – or the people in power, not only now but for the last few presidencies, have been working on a, a pattern of, of, of decentralizing our federal government so that we, we, we have weaker controls and therefore we're in this situation where we're relying on private money and, and, and philanthropic efforts and all of that in order to do – the the downtown core innovations like that yeah. you're involved in and that to me that's sad because it leaves rural areas completely left out yeah. it leaves our educational system our healthcare system it leaves all of the the things that sort of power humanity it takes away consistency absolutely and so so the question is and really it's focused on your last comment how do you take your power i'll just call it power right because you said you have it your power your privilege your ability to affect change and how do you properly steer that conversation so that there is more of a uh, of a of a benefit across all of society whether yeah. it's the US or the UK or even global society listen i don't have the answer to that and um i don't see myself as having much power i just see myself as having been very grateful for the education i've been given and the opportunities i've been given in life listen i had a plus one all my life I now am a plus one. It's actually okay. <laughs> okay. It's actually okay to be a plus one. Um, and I'm very fortunate and very lucky. But um, I do believe that the power of dialogue channeled in an effective, consistent manner is very important. So when you say dialogue, you mean civil discourse. I mean civil discourse. Yeah, which we're not having. And I just don't believe that days. we're having enough civil discourse. And so from my perspective, you know, people always say to me, oh, gosh, you know, when you speak to our young people, I just, I just did um, a talk the other day for Girls Who Invest mm -hmm. and for 60, 60, um, 60 women in um, going into the finance um, world um, in a big private equity firm on, private, on Park Avenue. 
And it was amazing looking at these women. You know, I was just at the Tory Burch Foundation meeting the other day, and it was amazing, like, you know, 16-year-old activist on stage who really wants to change the world. You know, somebody that escaped from North Korea who is now really, really helping that effort. Somebody, And you see all these amazing people and you just think, gosh, these are the types of but it, but but it's all in a civilized manner. You're in a you're in a private equity firm on Park Avenue, and you're talking to intelligent young women wanting to go into the rarefied world of finance and become Wall Street rainmakers, right? But how, how do you have that, that same conversation on the have, streets of the Bronx? I mean, well, so so it's difficult. It's it's difficult, right? It is difficult, and I understand that it's difficult. But you know, I think that. Having the right, the, the, a way of doing now with social media, for example, if you look at what's happening with some of the elections, and again, don't want to talk about, um, let me think Politics. About, of, a, <laughs> of a state that I know of, but you know, when you look at what's happening in Texas right now, you know, there's, there's one young guy who's a family guy, really, he's very softly spoken. Former he punk sits, rocker. He sits on, he sits on doorsteps and he's, he, he's, all his social media is done on people in his constituency's doorsteps. And it's so genius because what he's doing is he's thinking global but acting local. Right. And then you've got all these other people spending tons of money on these humongous campaigns, but that emotional engagement... Isn't there. Isn't there. Right. And so for me, discourse, civil discourse, and the power of conversation... This could be a TED Talk, right? We Absolutely. could do a whole TED Talk on civil discourse, the power of communication... Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I know people think that British people they use a lot of three-syllable words, so they're smarter. We're actually not smarter. It might be funnier sometimes, even if our jokes aren't understood. But we're not smarter. But I really believe in this. I think civil discourse, communication. I was the chairman of the debating society at school. Won't surprise you. Um, but you know, I think it's it's important to to have the conversation. And I think you know, where are we at today? We're sending bombs to people because of. They're a media know. company. And that whole thing is happening you know, in real we're, time. We're, we're, we're sitting outside doctor surgeries because we don't believe in what they're doing, but we're actually behaving worse than some of the things going on inside those. So I, I, I don't understand. The, the bombs and is the perfect example. I mean, there no, is no dialogue there. That's literally no anonymous violence. I think it's such violence. a shame. You know, yeah. I, I, I want to go back to dialogue, civil discourse, conversation, charm and charisma. I believe that charm and charisma are one of the most underutilized weapons in business, and they're free. And I think that if you're charming and you're charismatic, you're going to be successful in life. Why? Because people are attracted to charm and they're attracted to charisma. And therefore, why wouldn't you want to be charming? Why wouldn't you want to have charisma? Why wouldn't you want to? And yet, you know, we know that with four and a half billion cell phones in the world and the amount of time people spend on their phones, we know that one of the growing things in this country is actually loneliness and depression 100%. are growing very fast. So I firmly believe that conversation, civil discourse, and charm is something that can really help this country move forward. Well, Mara Gay, thank you so much for both your conversation and your charm today. Um, I would love and our listeners would love to know how they can uh, get in touch with you or learn more about your initiatives. Feel free yeah. to plug anything you'd like. Well, listen, I've started a small venture capital fund called Fernbrook, which is um, based in Manhattan with a great business partner called Bill Detweiler, who is has been an investment banker all his life and has worked on some great deals. And so he's kind of the finance part. I'm kind of the consumer part. And together, I think we make a good team. We um, invest in great people with great products and great synergies. And we invest in people who really want to make a difference. And, and what's your want to it, do website? Is that the best it's way called, to... We don't... Yeah, we're just actually having it built now. But we've been around for two years. And for the last two years, we've been trying to do proof of concept. So I've been running my consulting firm while we've been investing in um, in these brands. But um, So if somebody wants to invest with you or is interested in reaching out to you, how do they get a hold of you? Email, sure, I'm pretty sure phone, that they can, they can email me. LinkedIn. No, what's your preferred method? LinkedIn is good. You know, my email is good. People know how to find me. MM Lux Consulting has a website um, that, people, it. it's that people can access through. It's very simple. just says what we do. Um, but actually, Fernbrook is one of the things I'm most excited about because we've really invested in a lot of very talented young people. 50% of our investments are female-run, female female-led. 
We're seeing a lot of interest from private family offices around the United States who are looking to invest in brands of the future and brands of tomorrow. And I really believe we found a lot of these brands. And I think that, you know, a lot of the investments we made have been, we have to have proof of concept. So they have to be doing half a million or a million dollars of, of turnover. But, you know, we've now got nearly five brands in our portfolio that are going to be shortly doing $50 million. Amazing. So I'm very, very you know, very excited about that because to me that signifies that retail is very truly alive. They're all consumer goods companies. They're largely direct to consumer. They're digital. We don't have any media companies um, as yet, but we've got a lot of tech companies. We've got a lot of AI companies. I'm meeting with some really, really smart people in Silicon Valley that I think with the strategies that they're working on for AI could significantly change the world of retail today and some of the luxury luxury brands and in terms of AI. So it's very satisfying. Amazing. So. Well, thank you again for your time and uh, for your charm and conversation again. And we hope to have you back at some point. Thank you, Marigay. Thank you. That's it for Solar Stories. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next time for another great guest and another great story on the art and business of influence. I'm George Manley. This is where the story starts. We can't wait to hear yours. Solar Stories is presented by Solar Inc. You can find more about solar at solar.com. Copyright 2018, Solar Inc., all rights reserved. Thank you for listening.